Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. Here's an interesting fact. Women now control more than 50% of global wealth. Now, what are the implications of that for investing, for savings, and for budgeting? My guest today would know some of the answers. She's Nancy Tingler, author of The Women's Guide to Successful Investing, Achieving Financial Security and Realizing Your Goals. And it's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. For everything about Nancy Tingler, that's T-E-N-G-L-E-R, go to nancytingler.com or laffertingler.com. And you can also follow her on LinkedIn at Laffer Tengler Investments and on Twitter at ntengler. And say that three times real fast. Nancy, welcome to the show. Ira, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure. What in your background drew you to the world of finance? You don't look like a finance person. You look more normal. <laughs> uh, growing up in a home, a single parent home with no money. Um, I think, you know, in the 70s, it was very similar to now, but much worse. And uh, my mom, my dad left, my mom got a job, then she got a second job, then I got a job. And so money becomes really important when you don't have any. I would imagine that is the case. Yes. Now, the aim of your book or the objective of your book, especially by the title, again, The Women's Guide to Successful investing, achieving financial security, and realizing your goals. And that's a long title, Nancy. I almost got exhausted reading it, but okay. <laughs> so why did you decide, and I gave that statistic in the beginning, why did you aim it at females versus males or the whole population? I mean, I'm assuming that males reading your book can learn some stuff too. Yeah. And actually, a lot of the uh, reviews on Amazon for the first edition and now this edition have come from men. Uh, I, for this reason, uh, the average age of the first divorce of a woman is 30 in the U.S. and the average age of a widow is 59. Hmm. I was 59 and it felt really young uh, to, to be in that position. And, and then if you factor in the fact that women live longer than men, you have a situation where women are going to control 95% of the wealth at some point in their lives. And that becomes a recipe for disaster if they're not well-informed um, about the process or their own assets or don't have a relationship with their advisor. Two-thirds of women fire their advisor when the money spouse, that's what we call it in the business, when mm -hmm. the money spouse dies, two-thirds of women fire that uh, advisor, and that becomes expensive and super inconvenient. So my goal is to to really give women the tools, and, and because they actually make better investors than men. And that's not just one study, that's multiple studies over over time. I mean, there, I think the original study was done in the 80s or in the 1980s, but it's consistent. They they do more research, they tend to be less competitive. And so they, they make good decisions and then they're willing to change their minds. So uh, it's ironic and unfortunate that women excuse themselves from the conversation. So that's my passion. You mentioned people who either are widows or get divorced at, at a fairly early age or become widows at a fairly early age. It must be a, a shock to those women who relied on their spouse to handle the books and handle the finances and make the investments and cover expenses to all of a sudden be in a whole new world. Is there a recommendation you make for how they can get their arms wrapped around the whole situation at that point? Because it, you, it's hard to think clearly or rationally when something's happened to you personally, and now you're dealing with an unfamiliar world. Yeah. I mean, you're either angry or grieving or all of the above, and uh, you don't really need to add another thing to your list of, oh, I need to learn this. 
I, I think, I mean, that is why I, I wrote the book. I mean, the best defense is a good offense. And to really just start to to digest the concepts now, I mean, there's a glossary of terms in the book. There's critical lessons. I have 12 investing rules, five critical lessons. And, and then there's a lot of anecdotes from my personal life and also from clients that are uber wealthy that I've worked with over the years and some that are not so wealthy, the mistakes and lessons I learned from them hopefully shortcutting some of this for women. But here, here's a really interesting story. Uh, I left the business once in my 40s. I retired and I decided I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to have my husband and I are going to hire somebody to manage the wealth. We would go to these meetings in San Francisco where I was the chief investment officer, had been of one of the largest firms in the city. And they would we would sit in these meetings and they would ask my husband all the questions. <laughs> and then he would turn to me and they knew me. They would he would turn to me and go, I don't know. What do you think, Nance? And it was this, it was like offended me, not because I was a feminist, but because it was just inefficient. That still goes on today. And that's why advisors really need to focus on engaging the spouse or, or the, the woman in this case in the process, because you don't want to lose these accounts. She's going to outlive her husband, chances are, and you really want to maintain the relationship for their good and, and for your own. Do you think that financial planning is on a par with legal planning? What I mean by that is this, if you have a married couple and they realize they have to do some long-term planning in terms of just health directives and what happens if one spouse dies or is disabled. So they create some sort of legal structure, whether it's a trust or something else. So that's part of it. But are you also recommending that they really, before anything happens, whether there's a divorce or a death, that the couples look at their financial situation and decide how they're going to deal with it if one or the other leaves, dies, or whatever. Right. Yes, Ira, that's, that's critical, and it doesn't happen. So there was a study done by UBS, and millennial women, so my generation, actually engage in the investment process and the financial planning process more than their millennial counterparts. Now, it's it's not by a ju- you know huge amount, but but nonetheless, the trend is not in the right direction. And so uh, I used to write a column for USA Today, and the first article, they, they always write the headlines, and it was like, oh, you just got married, now get ready to get divorced. And I... <laughs> Uh, super uncomfortable, but in fact, that was the gist of it. Right. Um, because women need to, I mean, I, I know women that don't know the passwords to their accounts. They don't even know what the accounts are invested in. By the way, they don't really want to know. And so I think once, what I've had women tell me after reading this book in the first edition was they, like, they felt more powerful. They ultimately ended up staying with their advisor in many cases, but they made better clients and they were able to hold the advisor accountable. And that's really what the glossary does. Because in our in our business, which is dominated by men, they they like, you know, there's all sorts of vernacular that's unique to this business. And, you know, I just try to break it down in language that women d- 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 demystify it. Because it isn't brain surgery. Peter Lynch said anybody with fifth grade math can make a great investor. And I believe that to be true. Was that Peter Lynch or Merrill Lynch? Peter Lynch, the great, uh, yes. he ran the, <laughs> no, they would never say that. No, I know. That's why I just thought, <laughs> Very good. playing Very with good. words there, but I, I'm glad you said something a moment ago, which is that it's not necessarily the man's fault that some women don't want to know the passwords to accounts, et cetera, when they really should. Every adult member of a family should be able to know right. how, to, how to handle things. So, where does that come from? Is that cultural? Is that psychological? Or is it just the way things are? 
I, I think it's all of the above. I mean, women identify themselves as really good savers, but they tend to be risk averse. And my first investing rule is the biggest risk you can take in your portfolio is to not take enough risk. And my great lesson in that was this woman, Mrs. H, I call her, but she was a, she had about $40 million in the early 1980s. And she would inevitably come into our meetings and say, why do I own all these bonds? Why wouldn't I rather own stocks that have growing dividends? And 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 I learned from her. You're right. I mean, retirement, if you're lucky, is 20 years of unemployment, <laughs> and, and or maybe 30. Right. But it's you. You don't just automatically shift the bonds. You want your assets to continue to grow well into your lifetime. And and so I have examples of different asset allocation models. What happens if you don't do this? What happens if you just save? And the, the differences in the accumulated wealth are massive. And so once I think women begin to understand that they're buying a claim on real assets when they buy a, a share of stock. It's not magical. It's not gambling. They actually own something. And if they're getting paid a dividend and it's growing, what better hedge against inflation? And then I, you know, I show all the examples of time in the market versus timing the market. And I think once you inform yourself, uh, and then learn that it's accessible to you and, and by you, I mean women, but also men, that that becomes empowering. And that, that is the reward I hope that people will get out of this. this yes. Book. I don't want to exclude the men from the conversation. I think it's important to, to have them read your book as well. You mentioned the millennials. It's interesting. When I was growing up, I, I would never listen to my mother, but the one piece of advice she gave me, which unfortunately I didn't follow, which was that when you, when you are earning a salary or running a business, you pay yourself first. So she would say, you know, take 10% or whatever, put it away in savings. I, of course, being stubborn, didn't listen to that. But it's excellent. Do you still think it's excellent advice? I do in the sense of making sure you have a nest egg for not just for the future, but even an emergency fund. Yeah, absolutely. So I talk about mental accounting. I have this friend, her mother is elderly and she has little envelopes. Her her mental accounting is actually literal, but we, we all do it. Like you're saving for retirement, you're saving for college education for your kids, saving for philanthropy, whatever it is, you're saving to invest and you have different risk profiles for because there's different time horizons for each of those. But I also give examples, you know, I often get asked, is it too late? So I have, I have, that was my, that was my question. Yes, because our listeners okay. and viewers are thinking, okay, I'm at this age. Is it too late to start? And I'll, I'll leave the floor to you. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Well, so Stephanie Mooka is my prime example. This was a woman who really started investing in earnest after her husband died on a fixed income. Now, full disclosure, she lived to be 102, which we may not all have the luxury of doing, but she had either given away or still owned $5 million. It, that was the value of her portfolio. Ronald Reed was a janitor in in Connecticut. And he just continued to invest in blue chip stops, stocks, up markets, down markets. He lived into his 80s, but he died with $8 million. So the power of the compounding and the power of not jumping out because, you know, the market's down, mm -hmm. rather you should be adding to it, becomes a really compelling case for a lot of people. And you're, you're absolutely right. You should start young, but if you didn't, it's never too late. To, to step in and to accumulate and buy. Because, you know, Ira, now you can, you can open a brokerage account with zero. We, we, they had minimums when I was younger. You, right. you can buy a fractional share of a stock. So if you like a name like uh, Chipotle and it's trading at $1,500 a share, you could buy whatever amount with 50 bucks. So there's no excuse. And then the, the massive amounts of research that's available for free that we used to pay millions of dollars for in the 80s, right. that's also there 
for the ripe for the taking. So there's a lot of reasons that people should engage in the investment process. Nancy, why aren't the basics of finance taught in public school so that at least people can get a sense of how to budget and what a stock is and what a savings account is and what bonds do and the difference between stocks and bonds? Why isn't that taught in any that I'm aware of in any other public schools? So it's, it's a great question. There's a group called the National Council of Economic Education, and they gave a test to adults who got a C minus and younger uh, high school and college kids that flunked entirely, just a basic economics test. There are local chapters in almost every state. We have one here in Arizona, and they lobby to, to get economics taught in high school. Like it's, it's a mandatory class here. It isn't in most states, mm-hmm. to your point. And I, I don't know why, because it's critical. I mean, it, it's critical to the the state of the the personal balance sheet and income statement of every family to the nation, and we have an illit- economically illiterate number of generations, and it's it's not that complicated. So I, I advocate, I, I volunteer at, at speaking at Title One schools. They have the stock market game. Parents can go on to the website and do it themselves. We used to do it ad hoc at the dining room table. I got some of my best ideas from my kids, but <laughs> they don't remember it that, that way. They remember me complaining at stores where I owned the stock and the service was bad. I don't know that that happened. <laughs> I think it did. So anyway, <laughs> we were talking about millennials, and I'm wondering, do your lessons apply to the other end of the spectrum? What I mean by the other end of the spectrum, and there are still people around that were alive during the Depression, and as a result, their mentality was a certain way, and they were very very cautious about investing, savings, not spending too much money, all of that. Do the points you make in the book apply to that generation as well as millennials? Less so, but yes, because you know my, that was my father-in-law. He worked at the same place for 45 years. Right. Uh, had he taken his retirement and put any of it in equities, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation. But I, I do think that 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 it matters when you came of age. So my generation, remember like the 90s, I actually just wrote a piece about this because I think the 90s is analogous to what we're going through right now. But stocks were up, pick your index, over 400% during the decade. We were shifting, remember, from defined benefit plans to defined contribution plans Mm -hmm. or 401ks. So our generation, my generation got accustomed to investing watching, you know, experiencing bear markets, continuing to invest through their 401k, and they got real comfortable with risk. The millennials, for example, are more like that older generation that you're talking about, the depression era folks. They came of age during 2008, 2009, when they, their parents were watching their 401ks melt by 40%. And so they were very risk averse, more focused on experiences. I think now after COVID transfer payments, they're stepping into investing and trading, but I hope ultimately investing. And so, yeah, a lot of those principles remain the same for every generation. And, and those are really dealt, I, I really deal with those in the uh, 12 intelligent investing rules. Would you like to share one of those 12 rules for female investors? Yes, but I can't. I have to look at my book because well, I wrote okay. it. that's uh, okay. Yeah, that, that happens to me a lot. I always have to look at my, well, I don't have a book, but I have to look at my notes sometimes. <laughs> I wrote it six whole months ago. Oh, uh, yeah. No, I understand. So the first one I, I did share with you is the biggest risk to women's portfolios is that, is that we frequently don't take enough risk. And then 
the one that I think is important is if you're if you watch financial news media like I do, you tend to get caught up sometimes in the hype. And so I always tell people to mute it unless, of course, there's a CEO on or if I'm on. Yes, of course. (laughs) (laughs) um, Intelligent investing rule number four is don't run with the fast crowd. Establish a discipline that meets your objectives. Never chase total return and never, never, never buy a stock in a company you do not understand or does not meet your risk and investing objectives. And I give examples of all the times I did that and how how dramatically it failed and that really hitting singles and doubles, to use a sports metaphor, gets you where you want to go. You don't have to hit home runs. And I give examples of stock in that particular chapter that that I bought that went down a lot and I just kind of sat there with them and, you know, what my total return. So one is Starbucks. I bought it in 2007 after Howard Schultz came back to the company Mm -hmm. for the second time, stock went up dramatically. And then we had 2008, 2009, I paid $30 a share. It got down to seven. And, um, but I just hang on, hung on to it. And the compounding of that stock since then annually, 14%. I don't know where else you can get that. Well, that's great. great companies. Yeah. Buy great companies and you um you trust management to do the heavy lifting. Doesn't always work. You know, we've got things like Xerox and Polaroid in our past, but if you if you own the right kinds of companies, it it rarely pays to sell them. So you're saying Starbucks is grounds for investing. <laughs> I got that saying. one. Oh, thank you. Good. Thank you. I occasionally throw in a little 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 whatever that is, just pun, I guess. I think my he- headline was the when Starbucks got roasted. So they- <laughs> yeah, that can make sense. What do you say to people who would read your book but also say they're still frightened, I'll use that term, frightened or uncomfortable with investing in stocks because to them the stock market appears to be volatile. It has its ups, it has its downs. Now, you addressed it a little bit earlier where you said you hung on to the stock no matter what happened in terms of the price. And I think that's a, obviously a good piece of advice. But how do you deal with people whose mentality is, you know, the stock market might crash, it might just could totally go away. How do you reassure someone like that? Or can you? You can, because there's a lot of data. So I do go through that. Here's Here's what happens over the last 30 years if you miss the four best days and it cuts your annualized return dramatically. But I also have a chapter on ETFs because one of the things about stocks is sometimes people fall in love with them. And then when it is finally time to sell, they don't sell. But, um, you know, we run an ETF. That's the background you see behind me. It's an actively managed ETF. But wait, wait, also- wait, wait, I'm not going to stop you there because you just say it like everybody knows what that is. What is an ETF? Oh. TGLR is the ticker, but also women are women. <laughs> no, but are what, is, what does ETF stand for? Oh, I'm sorry, exchange traded funds. So unlike mutual funds, these these particular funds trade like a security. So you always know the price. It's it's minute by minute, second by second. Whereas a mutual fund, you buy and they price it at the end of the day, and you're not really even sure what you bought level you bought in at. The fees are usually pretty high, and then you're you're stuck in there with the gains that. That might that are realized at the end of the the quarter. I'm sorry, at the end of the fiscal year. I used to run a bunch of mutual funds. It's just not an ideal environment. ETFs are tax efficient, and there's there's a reason for that, which I can't even really explain because they they do baskets of tradings. When I buy a stock, they actually have it delivered in a basket, not a real <laughs> basket. Um, so they're tax efficient, and they're for busy people who say, I, I get it. I know I should be more involved, and particularly women. But I don't have any time. And there's all sorts of ETFs. I mean, if you want one that is in, you know, only in space items, you can get that. If you want electric vehicle to pack 
ETF, you could get that. They're they're very specialized. Ours is kind of a workhorse for women. I would call it the little black dress. It's an everyday. This is where you can just hide and just stay. It goes, you know, provides protection. It also keeps up. That's where I have my money. But there's if there are ETFs for everybody. I don't think there's any bagel ETFs, though. <laughs> well, I may have to start one. But see, to my point about why people should read the book and also question you because you just said ETF as if everybody's supposed to know what ETF is. And right. I it's had to ask you what to explain it for our listeners and viewers because I'm sure a lot of them don't know what ETF is. And and that is why I did the glossary. What's a defined yeah. benefit plan? What is concentration risk? What's correlation? What's asset allocation? What's behavioral economics? What's a blue chip stock? And that's all in in the glossary in the back of the book and in English. <laughs> when you plain English. understood what you're saying, yes, exactly, plain English for people to get it. Isn't it funny that there there's there have been so many books on finance and investing over the decades. I remember there was one book I was reading about how to understand business, and it used a lot of these terms. And I, I got into, I think, up to chapter two, and I was understanding everything they said. And then as soon as I got to chapter three, I, I said, okay, I'm lost here. So I gave it up. But you know, if it's in plain English, I, I think I can handle it. I think most people can, because these, these concepts are not, they shouldn't be inaccessible to anyone. And as Peter Lynch, not Merrill Lynch said, yes. <laughs> um, it, it, if you have a fifth grade education, you can, you can invest and, uh, in math. And, and he also said, buy what you know. And so I, I think it's really important that, you know, women tend to be the ones in the family that are doing, you know, buying, acquiring things for the household. So they're accustomed to doing research. They're they're familiar with the service they receive. You know, if I'd have bought Costco when I started running, you know, doing carpools and sporting events with my kids, I'd I'd be a millionaire. But instead, I was going to Costco. Yes. And so, <laughs> what I'm suggesting is people do both. Well, you can research Costco as we did to find out when's the best time to go to avoid the crowds. And I'm not going to reveal it publicly because <laughs> I'm keeping that to ourselves because... I don't want to deal with crowds and parking and all that stuff. But I did find oh, out when the best time to go in our area is. So <laughs> I had a, a, two authors on who wrote a book on Costco. It was a very fun book, but uh, that's, that's for another day. When you put the book together, how did you focus yourself in the sense that you knew which, who you were writing for and you knew what you wanted to say, but you also obviously are busy doing other things? So did you devote two hours a day to writing, three hours a day to writing, and once you were done, the rewriting and then the editing. I mean, the book is not an easy process. Well, I left, such a great question. I left the business, um, as I mentioned, when we were interviewing advisors and I came back, but I got my MFA in creative writing, nonfiction. Ah, okay. And so it, it is, I think Wait, 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 wait a minute. Creative writing and nonfiction? Yep. That's an oxymoron. Uh, what are you talking about? It's, no, it's, it's memoir, right? Memoir okay. is, you know, we, we think it's um, all true, but, you know, some of the characters are compilations. I what, see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I some gotcha. of the dialogue is essence of, but not precise. And so you have creative license, but you have to be responsible. So I did write a memoir on a period of time in the investment business in the 90s that was really juicy, but I'm, I'm, dusting that off now. I had an agent and then I was like, no, I want to buy, write this book on investing for women. And so I set it up so that first you have to understand what's at stake. And then you have to know that you can, you know, how to do it. How, how do you get where you're going? You have to know where you want to go. 
And then there's a, a, a sort of a, a side of how COVID really hit women's finances much harder than men's. Mm-hmm. And that was the case for me, by the way, not COVID, but I left the industry and my career to take care of kids when they were in middle school and high school. I mean, I, I hope I took care of them the whole time, but I had my mother and she was getting older. And so I, I left the industry at my peak earning years. That happened to a lot of women in COVID. And then, you know, COVID hit harder men harder from a health standpoint. And so it widened the the gap of of longevity. So you've got women saving less for retirement, and then you've got them lasting, you know, longer than they did before relative to their husbands or male partners. Um, And then I give them confidence by citing the research on the fact that women do make better investors and the reasons for that. And then I talk about developing a discipline and intelligent strategy all your own. Because discipline is really what matters. And uh, again, I have examples of when I wasn't disciplined. So by the end of the book, you're going to say, why did I, why am I listening to her? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you gave reasons. And we should point out Nancy is CEO and Chief Investment Officer of Laffer Tengler Investments. Just to give you a little bit of a a title, which I don't think we, we referred to earlier as the title, but obviously the company. Last question for you, Nancy. If technology clearly makes it easier for you to write your memoirs and your book, uh, as opposed to the old days when they had typewriters, electric typewriters, selectric typewriters, etc. I remember that. Yeah. So how does technology help today in terms of financial planning for the people you're writing for? Is it better for them because of where technology is? Yeah, for sure. And and by the way, I didn't answer your question. I wrote it in two weeks. All, one Amazing. Okay. Yeah. So I think one of the things that I I relearned when I was writing the book is you can pretty much find the answer to anything. Now add in chat GPT or any other generative AI. You can really, I mean, you have to check the sources, but they give you the sources. So mm-hmm. you can ask a question, a complicated question. Uh, one of my analysts use it, uses it just to get started on a company. You can ask a, a, a difficult question, complicated question, get an answer. And, and now you have a framework, which would be awesome if you're writing a book too, right? Absolutely. You can have an outline. And so I did it recently. We, we posted a job posting. I entered the salient points in chat GPT and we got a job description. It was damn good excuse my language. So there is a lot of opportunity for people to say, if I save this much, how will I be? And what we know is that one in 10 Americans undersave for retirement. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, only one in 10 save enough, sorry, for retirement. And so people, if they just ask those questions and it can be threatening, but if, if you're just asking those questions online, you can get a sense of what you're going to need do I need 10 times my fi- my final salary? Is it seven? What's my lifestyle like? And there are people more than willing to give you answers on, you know, a technological platform, any, you know, pick one. I think the secret to all of it, though, is it may be uncomfortable to start, but it's like riding a bike. You have to just get up and try it. You may fall down a little bit, but the more you get used to it, you start to master it. it there's a sense of satisfaction and discipline, and you start to learn, which is a, the most important thing. And yep. what's your most important point you'd like for, before I let you go, the most important point of the book that you would like people to know? That you can do it. It doesn't matter how old you are. You can save to invest and you can be a successful investor. Just, I mean, you could do it on your own. I think the book helps, but I, I just really want to encourage men and women to engage in the process and to educate their children because that's critical. That's what we started with. And you're absolutely right. And by the way, Nancy, I hate to break it to you, but I'm an AI. 
I'm, I'm, you not, are? I'm not really Ira. I'm just AI generated. So <laughs> anyway. My You're guest, generative AI. You learn. Ex exactly. My guest, has been, my guest has been Nancy Tendler. She's author of The Women's Guide to Successful Investing, Achieving Financial Security and Realizing Your Goals. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. For everything about Nancy Tengler, that's T-E-N-G-L-E-R, go to nancytengler.com. And you can also check her on LinkedIn at Tengler Investments. And she's on Twitter at ntengler as well. So she's all over the place. Go, go check her out. Nancy, thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Same here. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.